Hello, everyone. My name is Wan Yi, and I'm the moderator for this session. We're very lucky today to have Peter Singer joining us at this EAGX Asia Pacific Conference. Peter is a professor of bioethics at Princeton University. He is an Australian moral philosopher and is widely viewed as one of the most influential philosophers of modern times. He focuses on practical ethics and is known in particular for his book, Animal Liberation, in which he argues that animals can suffer, that it is morally wrong to inflict extraordinary suffering upon them. Peter is also famous for his 1971 essay, Famine, Affluence and Morality, in which he argued that those from more affluent societies have a moral obligation to donate and help the global poor. In 2009, he helped found The Life You Can Save, an organization based on his book of the same name. You can download a free copy of the book following the link on this web card. Peter's writings have helped inspire the creation of the effective altruism movement. Today, we'll be having a conversation with him focusing on global poverty and animal welfare as EA concerns. Hi, Peter. Hi, hello. Nice to be with hey. you. Thank you for being here. Let's start with animal welfare. You've recently published a new book, Why Vegan? Can you tell us more about it and how has this book evolved from animal liberation written in 1975? Well, uh, Why Vegan is a, a very slim book in a series being published by Penguin in uh, most of the world and by Norton in the United States. And uh, it was an opportunity that arose because the uh, editor of the series in London uh, thought that it would be good to have something uh, by me in the series and we discussed what to do and because this is quite a slim book uh, it seemed best to focus on one particular issue and the rise of veganism in the world has you know, obviously got a lot of attention there's a lot of people interested in this so the book brings together uh, both some of my earliest writings you mentioned the book animal liberation and there's even an even earlier uh, article from 1973 called, called uh, the same title that was published in the New York Review of Books. But then it, it also looks at, uh, includes later essays, which I wrote over the years, uh, going right up to one that was published this year about the pandemic and about its connection with eating animals. So uh, that was the idea to, to bring together a, a lot of my writings over a long period of time. Um, all basically arguing the case for, for being vegan or at least being close to vegan um, as the most ethical diet. And can you mention just a little bit about the relation to this year's pandemic in the book? Yes. So um, what we talk about in, in the book, I, there's a co-authored essay I wrote with Paolo Cavalieri, who's an Italian scholar and animal activist. And uh, that focused on the origins of the, of the pandemic at the Wuhan wet market uh, and highlighted the fact that this is both uh, a kind of hell for animals because animals of all different species, wild animals, are captured and taken to the market live and put in cages next to quite different species of animals that might well terrify them. And uh, then a customer uh, ask for those animals and they're taken out of the cage and they're slaughtered on the spot. So it's it's terrible for the animals, but it's also extremely unhygienic uh, in terms of obviously the animals have uh, feces and then blood when they're killed, all mixed around in the place. Uh, and uh, it's uh, 
highly probable that that's how the novel coronavirus uh, arrived and contacted humans because of this desire to eat wild animals, which introduced new, uh, new viruses to us. So we can see the enormous cost, uh, both in terms of the mounting death toll um, and also the economic costs from the disruption, which also cause further deaths, particularly in poorer countries, uh, from this desire to eat wild animals. And uh, we argue that that should not be allowed, that such wet markets should be prohibited. But uh, also, there is, of course, a further connection with pandemics, and that is that factory farms are another source of new viruses. And the previous pandemic, the swine flu pandemic of 2009, which also killed a large number of people, estimates go over half a million deaths from that, um, arose from a, a pig farm in North Carolina. Uh, so uh, if we really want to be serious about preventing further pandemics, then trying to stop factory farming, uh, avoiding supporting it by buying its products, and as a politically active citizen, trying to get policies changed to make factory farming uh, less viable than it is now, uh, would also be not only good for animal welfare, but also good for human welfare. You kind of answered this question already, but um, an ear forum question came in about fish. Um, just to elaborate a tiny bit, what are your thoughts on the argument that eating wild-caught fish is ethically acceptable because the alternative to catching them is a similarly unpleasant natural death? Well, um, of course, uh, all animals die at some point, including us. Um, those deaths um, may be unpleasant, um, definitely, but um, wild-caught fish actually die... I think sometimes very painful deaths and very slow deaths uh, when they're caught. So there are many different ways of, of catching fish in, in the oceans. Um, some of them are caught on very long lines with, with hooks, and then they are dragged through the water by the trawler um, uh, while the, the hook is in their mouth, which the mouth is a very sensitive nerve-filled area in fish. Um, other fish are caught in big nets, um, often deep in the ocean and these fish which live deep in the ocean are then brought to the surface in the net and that causes decompression anybody who knows about deep water diving scuba diving knows that you can't come to the surface rapidly or this causes great pain from decompression but this happens to um, billions of fish every year being wild caught uh, that they die because of decompression and their their internal organs uh, rupture and come out of their mouths or gills um, and others that this that are not deep water fish they will just suffocate in the air on the deck or in the hold of the ship when uh, the net is emptied on the ship or maybe just the pressure in the net so um, these are very slow drawn out deaths there, there isn't really a humane slaughter for wild caught fish uh, some I think uh, Norway and the Netherlands are doing some research on this, but, but basically if you eat wild-caught fish, they've died slow, drawn-out deaths, and I think often worse deaths than um, if in, in nature. Also, apart from that, there's a problem with uh, overfishing because the ocean is a commons, so the tragedy of the commons situation applies, and many fish stocks, especially those of slow-breeding, long-lived fish, um, are getting exhausted. And when, particularly when affluent people uh, buy fish 
they may have been taken from coastlines of, of much poorer countries. Maybe uh, Europe, for example, takes a lot of fish from the African coastline, just outside the territorial waters. And so villages that used to sustain themselves on the coast by fishing um, can no longer do so. So there's also a, uh, ramifications for global poverty from wild caught fish as well. Thanks. I think that um, answers the question. Um, moving on, um, there's a question about as donors, should we be giving more to long-termism now in e that EA has shifted more towards that cause area? What's the argument for giving more for future good when there's so much suffering now? Well, I'm not really an advocate of uh, giving more for future good now. Um, so I agree with the argument that uh, there is a lot of suffering now that we can prevent. Um, I'm not opposed to the idea that we should be thinking more about the long-term future. I think that's quite correct. And I agree also with the argument that we should be trying to reduce risks of our species becoming extinct. I think that is extremely important. There are different possible views about how terrible it would be, but I'm, I agree with those who think this would be uh, a, a great tragedy and, and not just because 7.6 billion humans would die, but also because there would not be future generations of humans who I hope will live good lives. Um, but uh, I think the, uh, the kind of things that we can do at this stage to reduce these risks um, don't require vast resources. What they do require is some thoughtful and talented people to work on them and to try to work out the best ways of doing this. Um, and you know, then perhaps we can start to progress with some of these issues. We can look at what are the great risks that we can reduce and we can certainly support movements to reduce those risks. But um, I think at this stage, there's a lot of uncertainty about what will actually reduce these risks. Whereas in contrast, when we're dealing with suffering now, whether it's suffering of humans in extreme poverty or suffering of animals, we can know quite well what will reduce the suffering now. So um, I think this is uh, still an area that we should be supporting and donating to and also trying to build a wider movement because I think you're much more likely to get a broad movement if you talk about tangible things like animal suffering and human suffering and poverty than if you talk about uh, the next billion years and what we can do to ensure that people are around for um, centuries or millennia or um, even billions of years. Uh, I think that's a, a kind of a narrower focus, which some people understand and respond to. But if we want to build the EA movement, get more people into it, and perhaps eventually, therefore, get more people moving on to look at long-termism because they've become involved in the EA movement, um, I think we need a broad movement and I think we need to focus on the more tangible uh, suffering that's going on in the world now to bring people into the movement. Related to that, what do you think about the idea that we can't really justify giving to global health charities because we're clueless about the long-term impacts? Um, it's a question that came in from on the forum. Um, is there something especially, especially intrinsically important about being certain of the impact? Uh, there's nothing intrinsically important about being certain of impact because it's very hard to be certain. Um, I mean, I think there are some things where we can be think that impact is is very very probable. We you know virtually certain, but complete certainty 
we, we don't have generally. Uh, that's true. But um, if, you know, you, you said when you put the question, uh, the suggestion was that we are clueless about the long-term impact. But if we are really clueless, that is, we have no idea whether the long-term impact will be good or bad, then the fact that the short-term impact is good, let's assume that this is one of those short-term impacts where we can be highly confident that it is good. Let's say we're treating malaria or preventing malaria or we're restoring sight in people who are blind or preventing people going blind or we're helping people to get out of poverty by training them to run small businesses, all of these things where we have good carefully controlled studies to show that this helps people and reduces premature deaths. Then if it's true that we're clueless about whether the long-term impact is good or bad, let's do it because if we are highly confident that the short-term impact is good, and we have no reason to think that the long-term impact is more likely to be bad than good, we're doing, we know we're doing some good and we don't know that we're doing any harm. What are your thoughts on using subjective well-being to evaluate the impact of interventions rather than income or consumption or years of healthy life? I do think that subjective well-being is uh, the really important measure and that we should try to maximise subjective well-being um, over time, of course. Uh, the only doubts I, I have as to, you know, why we might use those other objective measures that you mentioned is um, doubts about whether we can measure subjective well-being uh, well enough at present. If, you know, we had a completely accurate objective readout of uh, everybody's subjective well-being, if we just could push a button and we could measure whether people's subjective well-being increases or decreases, uh, I would use that in place of these objective measures. And, you know, perhaps one day we will get good enough measures. In, in some areas, we already do have reasonable uh, estimates of subjective well-being. But uh, I think this is an important area of research. I hope that we'll develop it and we'll get better at uh, assessing, measuring subjective well-being and uh, agreed account of, of what the best indicators of that are. Um, and then more and more, we would use it. And you've argued that we're morally required to help those in need when we can do so at little cost to ourselves. Are people who don't give generously to effective charities doing something wrong? Should we hold blameworthy those who don't? Uh, so I distinguish the way I think about morality, whether somebody is doing something wrong and whether we should hold them blameworthy. Um, I think they're not the same thing because, uh, you know, yes, I, I think they are doing something wrong. Um, taking that as an uh, objective standard, if they're affluent people and they're not using any of their wealth to help reduce suffering in the world or improve well-being in the world, they're doing something wrong. Whether we should blame people is itself an act that has to be assessed by its consequences. So um, I think we, you know, whether praise and blame are acts that we choose to take in certain circumstances. And we should ask, will blaming somebody, in the case that you mentioned, will that lead to better consequences? Now, it may. It may if, if we can help to create a culture in which people will see giving, that if you're affluent, then giving to help people in poverty is a, a, a necessary part of being an ethical person. 
that would be a good thing. And and a lot of my writing, I've I've tried to do that. I've tried to get people to see that this is part of being a, a living an ethical life. But sometimes if you blame somebody, if you're too self-righteous or censorious, you don't have a positive impact on them. And that's what you want to do. So I think very often uh, it's better to encourage people rather than blame them. And you can encourage them, uh, for example, by referring to the evidence that helping others can be part of a meaningful and fulfilling life, that uh, a lot of people who do help others, who are generous, report that their lives go better in contrast to many people who don't help others um, and have lower personal well-being as well. So encouraging people to join an EA community, to meet other people who are living this way, um, and to talk about finding fulfillment in what you're doing and how that adds meaning and purpose to your life. I think that's probably very often a better way of encouraging people to do, of persuading people to do something than actually blaming them. And this is from um, the discussion um, currently on Swapcard. Does the EA movement underestimate the impact of media storytelling and appealing to the heart, emotions and popular culture? What are the EA document? Where are the EA documentaries that have gone viral and entered the public consciousness? Why don't we have a social dilemma or like the game changes like other movements do? Okay, so that's an interesting question. Uh, I think the the EA movement is in something of a bind on on this issue because on the one hand we do want to move people and persuade them, as I was just saying in response to your previous question, and it's true psychologically that appeals to the heart appeals that show identifiable individuals who can be helped uh, are likely to move a lot of people that that's sort of the mainstream thing as the question implies uh, those are things that go viral but on the other hand the ea movement does not want to get people to give just with their heart because giving with your heart is likely to lead people not to do the research that they need to find that the giving is effective. And sometimes the giving that is most effective, in fact, I would say generally the giving that is most effective is not giving to the identifiable individual, but giving to people where you can never really know who you helped. Uh, Take, for example, malaria, just uh, something I mentioned earlier. Um, The Against Malaria Foundation, I think, has always been one of GiveWell's top recommended charities is highly effective. It distributes bed nets in areas where malaria is a problem. But you can never know, if you give to Against Malaria Foundation, you can never know whose life you've saved. You can know that your donation bought a certain number of nets. You can even know on their website where those nets are. You know, they can, they'll tell you, we allocated your donation to the Congo and this region that we're working in now. Um, but you know, whose life was saved? Well, you can't tell because not every child would have died, obviously, um, if they hadn't had a net. So we need to get people to think about that. If we just get them to, to give with their hearts, we'll show them photos of a particular child. We'll say, you can help this child. Um, you know, there are organizations that link you to the child and gets the child to write back to you and so on. Um, but that's been shown not to be as effective as uh, other organizations. So, so I think that's our problem. Um, if we pull 
too much on the heartstrings, if we make documentaries that tug on the heartstrings, they're going to do that through identifiable uh, people that you that you help. And then when people, you know, when we then suggest to people, so here's our list of the most effective charities, say the list that For Life You Can Save has, um, they're going to say, hey, wait a minute, I want to see the child I'm helping. It doesn't work that way. So I hope we can find ways of reaching uh, more people nevertheless, but uh, what we need is a combination of head and heart. And we have to somehow have documentaries or whatever else we do has to emphasize that combination, not just the heart. And um, one more question that's a bit about um, comparing the individual and the collective. What do you think about the moral justification for doing things which have a collective impact? For example, showing up to a protest or going to vote, even though the, there's a very small probability of one person changing the outcome. Right. Um, in those cases, there are, of course, very small probabilities um, of you changing the outcome. But um, you may be trying to help build a movement, um, going to a protest. Uh, it's true that whether one more person is or isn't at the protest isn't going to make a big difference, but um, it may encourage others to go. You may talk to your friends about going. They may go. Uh, I think this, this can be important, um, particularly issues where we can't have an impact, a, a big impact personally. Um, so impact uh, issues where we need to get the government to change its policies. And the only way we can do that is to be an active citizen um, and uh, either protest or lobby or speak to your member of parliament or member of Congress um, and uh, try and try and get change that way. So um, I think that that is definitely worth doing. But, uh, and I think EA people should do that. And, and if they have, uh, you know, in particular circumstances where you think we really are on the verge of getting some important change, some, some systemic change that could make a big difference, then that may be something that you want to actually work on exclusively for a while and put money into as well, if that can make a difference. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think that effective altruists can do different things. I think we can give to highly effective charities. We can be an active citizen for good in various ways. And uh, I'm certainly not here to say that we should only try to earn money, as much money as we can, and give it to charities and not be involved in protests or voting or um, other political movements for change. We're actually out of time, but can you say in a few sentences what would you like the community community to be in 10, 20 years' time? Well, the main thing I would like the community to be in 10 or 20 years' time is a lot bigger. Um, I think the, the the first 10 years, maybe it's 12 years, something like that now, that we've had the effective altruism movement has been a tremendous success. Um, we have this movement now over so many countries of the world, including people in different countries that I know I'm speaking to now. That's a great success. We've also moved hundreds of millions of dollars to uh, highly effective charities, um, uh, and uh, that's good, but it's still not enough. I would like us to get much more mainstream and to start affecting uh, a much larger proportion of the money that goes. For example, in the United States, uh, something like $460 billion are donated to charity each year, and only 6% of that goes overseas, and I'm sure of that 6%, uh, or goes internationally, I should say, of that 6%, I'm sure not all of that is highly effective either. So if we could get 
10% of that uh, $460 billion going to really effective, the most effective charities in the world um, in 10 years or 20 years and, and do that also in other countries in the world so that we have, because there's increasing huge wealth now in a lot of other countries, including Asian countries, if we could get even 10% of that going to the most effective charities, I think we would have made more progress and we would have a, a broader base on which we could build for even further into the future. Thank you so much, Peter. That's all the time that we have for this session. And thanks everyone for your questions. Thank you very much. Thank, for thank you, Wendy. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks for putting the questions.